It's 11 minutes before the hour. You are listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, February 11, 2022. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. The Chichagoff Island community of Pelican is negotiating the sale of the city-owned processing plant to its current tenant, Yacobi Fisheries, the sole processor in town. But as KCAW's Tosh Kimmel reports, this comes after city leaders rejected a half-million-dollar offer from an investor group seeking to buy the commercial property. Pelican is a small community, but it is a fishing community. And for five years, it was a fish town without a processor to buy the local fleet's salmon catch. That changed in 2015 when Yacobi Fisheries, owned by Pelican resident Seth Short, restarted operations in a former crab plant owned by the city. Today, they're the economic engine of the town of around 55 permanent residents, processing about a million and a half dollars in fish last season. Now, the city is negotiating the sale of the former crab plant, which Yacobi Fisheries has been leasing for the past eight years. Stewart says Yacobi Fisheries is invested in Pelican. We'd like to be in control of the future of our business and not have someone else in control of it. That specter of outside control was raised in recent months. An investor partnership has offered a half million dollars for the crab plant building, but the city wasn't interested. Kent Crayford, co-owner of Alaska Seaplanes, was involved. The other half of the partnership is Steve Daniels, who owns a charter fishing lodge in town. Daniels says the city never acknowledged their offer. I waited for my some kind of response from the city for oh, over five weeks, I believe. And then finally there was a meeting and it wasn't on the agenda. The pair is now threatening legal action if the city doesn't consider their offer, which they say would allow Yacobi Fisheries to remain as a long-term tenant. Pelican Mayor Patricia Phillips didn't want to be recorded for this story, but in an interview, she said that the city council feels Yacobi owning the property would be the best option for a community which is rooted in commercial fishing. Critics are concerned about a new city ordinance that would allow the sale of the crab plant to Yacobi for below market value, so long as it fosters economic development. The ordinance was passed unanimously by the city council in December. One of the most vocal critics has been Pelican resident Gerald Foss. He's concerned the city council is acting against the long-term interest of the community by crafting what he fears could be a sweetheart deal for the biggest business in town. He notes that a majority on the council are linked to the commercial fishing industry. It makes it so a small group of people can pretty much take over the town with their votes. So four votes on a council, they can do anything they want. Kent Crayford, one of the spurned investors, says the issue is not that the city has apparently chosen to sell to Yacobi, but rather that they failed to be transparent with other potential buyers. They have one opportunity to maximize the return on the sale of that asset for the people of Pelican. You know, they have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to the people of Pelican. And so what's just confusing to me is why they haven't given our proposal its due and equal consideration. But Pelican's mayor, Patricia Phillips, insists that the city council is following the will of its citizens. She says the city has received some 40 letters supporting the sale. Yacobi Fisheries has invested in Pelican, and the city recognizes that, says owner Seth Stort. Generations of fishermen have delivered fish in Pelican, and it's amazing to have these people that have been fishing for 40 years and how happy they are that they can do that again. There's a real community that's based in commercial fishing that lasts more than just a season or more than just that one delivery. These people have been coming here for years. 
Pelican's mayor says negotiations over terms of a sale are ongoing and no decisions have been made. There will be public meetings before anything's final. In the meantime, would-be investor Steve Daniels says he's shopping for an attorney. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Tosh Kimmel. COVID-19 cases in Alaska are decreasing as the Omicron wave tapers off throughout the country. Weekly case totals in Alaska dropped from 14,000 last week to 9,000 this week. That's a 36 percent decrease in reported cases. Alaska's chief medical officer, Dr. Ann Zink, notes that even though case numbers are declining, Alaska still has one of the highest case counts in the country. While that means more people have some immunity, she says, people who haven't received a booster shot are three times more likely to have symptoms if they test positive. More of the population has some degree of protection, either being vaccinated uh, and ideally boosted or having previously had COVID-19. And by far, your best protection is if you are boosted, if you are eligible against the disease. The state's Department of Health reported about 2,200 cases for Monday and Tuesday. The department reported 21 deaths on Wednesday, two of which are from the last week. The rest occurred earlier in the pandemic. Zink says the decline in cases also means COVID treatments are more widely available. Previously, certain oral antiviral and monoclonal antibody treatments were only recommended for those who were immunocompromised, pregnant, or 65 and older with risk factors. Now there's enough for patients who are likely to be hospitalized if they test positive. So really anyone 50 and older with underlying risk factors, anyone 75 and older, regardless of risk factors, as well as those who are pregnant and those who are immunocompromised and unlikely to mount a good response to a vaccine. The decline in cases and increase in available treatments prompted Juno officials on Wednesday to lower the city's risk level. That means the city will no longer require masking for vaccinated people at indoor spaces and crowded outdoor events. Indoor gatherings are still limited to 50 percent capacity or 50 people, and masks are required for those who are unvaccinated. Statewide, 29 adult ICU beds were available Wednesday. Eight of them are in Anchorage and seven are in Southeast. The Petersburg School Board at a regular meeting Tuesday night decided to loosen the school district's masking policy. The newly adopted plan creates a system that allows for limited masking when cases are low and optional masking when cases are very low. KFSK's Angela Denning reports. Two days after a vehicle convoy drove through town protesting COVID-19 mandates, about 40 people showed up in the high school library for the same reason. A handful addressed the school board and others sent in letters. Colleen Schwartz brought up religion and money regarding the pandemic. There is one judge, there is only one judge, and he cannot be bribed. Follow your conscience, develop your conscience today, right now, and follow the frickin' money. Amen. Yes. Fourth grade teacher Shannon Vandervest said she might not sign up for teaching next year if masking didn't change. I don't want to be forced to live in this what-if fear-based society. I believe in living in the here and now. And for me, the here and now is based on the fact that I'm being forced to wear a mask against my rights. The school district had adopted a new policy in January that loosened testing and quarantines, but kept universal masking. Board member Megan Litster had voted against the plan. On Tuesday, she presented a new plan for the board to consider that includes thresholds for when masking would be required in each school. I do feel really strongly that establishing 
metrics or parameters is important at this juncture as cases seem to be stabilized um, so that we don't get caught in a loop of saying soon but not yet. The plan says families should assume masking is required every day at some point. It establishes a red, yellow, and green status depending on infections in the school. Green is if there have been no cases in a school's building for 10 consecutive days. Then masking becomes optional. Red status requires universal masking. For the elementary, that would mean four or more elementary classrooms had a positive case in them. For the secondary schools, where more mixing occurs, red means three or more students were positive in the building. The yellow status is the most detailed and encompasses what the schools have experienced most of the school year. For the elementary, yellow would be if there are three or less classrooms affected by infections. It would allow a masking-on-the-move concept where students and staff can take off their masks when they are in their individual classrooms. If someone in the classroom tests positive, then the classroom moves to red status and universal masking for at least 10 days. For the secondary schools, yellow means two students or less have been positive in the schools. It requires masking on the move in shared spaces. Students and staff can remove their masks in the classrooms only if they are seated at least three feet from others. Megan Litster says the plan would require more masking in the secondary schools because some classrooms aren't big enough for spacing out. I think there's still going to be, unfortunately, significant masking at secondary until we're in green. The plan makes one area stricter than it has been. It requires close contacts within the same household as a positive to either quarantine for at least five days or test daily for 10 days. The plan received unanimous support from other board members with a few minor amendments. School board member Carrie Case supported having different rules at the different schools. She said COVID rules at the secondary level are more complicated anyway because many of those students are traveling for activities, adhering to other schools' rules. I know personally for my student, um, masking is okay and doing activities being in school is very important. Board member Jay Lister who, like Megan Litster, voted against universal masking last month, said the plan is taking a step in the right direction. I think we need to start looking for off-ramps, and this isn't where we want to be, but it's getting there a little bit, you know. The person who will be crunching all the data for when the status needs to change day-to-day will be Trish Oppenheim, the school nurse. Universal masking is still required on all buses. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.